is for us. He is. We can all go home. <laughs> Will you join with me in prayer for a moment? God, we thank you for the message of that song, the message of Romans 8, the message of your victory. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not with him freely give us all things? God, may we live in that, and may you guide us in our words right now, and may you uh, teach us where we are, where we live, um, um, what you want us to have from today. And um, we commit ourselves to you, Lord, and to this just brief time here in your word. Uh, guard our minds and our hearts, remove the distractions, and uh, uh, just s speak through us here, Lord, uh, all of us together here, myself as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the first promise of Christmas, we're still in the Christmas season. So, so we wanted to, you know, we don't want to just cast it aside too fast. But the first promise of Christmas in the gospel, as you might guess, in, is in the book of Genesis, uh, chapter 3, verse 15. Listen as God speaks to the serpent after humanity eats the forbidden fruit. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, there's a very interesting paradox between the celebration of Christmas and this first promise of the coming of a victor. And as I was recently reminded, if there's one tagline associated with Christmas, what would it be? Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Rightly so. Jesus came to bring peace in the fullest sense of the word, shalom. He came to reverse the consequences of the fall of humanity and bring the full restoration of all the brokenness in the world, the renewal of perfect harmony, love, and justice for the flourishing of humanity, just as he intended in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And he's begun that amazingly with our lives. And we have tasted of his shalom. We have tasted of peace on earth. But the paradox is that this first Christmas announcement in Genesis promises enmity. What is enmity? Some people don't even understand that word. It's the beginning of hostilities, suffering, and then victory. Yes, victory and peace, ultimate peace. But the road to that, the road leading to victory that we just sang about, is war. Not the literal and physical wars that have been, are, and will be until Jesus comes. But the spiritual war that is going on since Genesis 3, when God pronounced enmity, hostility, antagonism between the woman and her offspring, which refers to the people of God throughout history, and the serpent identified in Revelation as the dragon, the serpent of old, who is called the devil, and Satan, who deceives the whole world, and his offspring, those that aren't the people of God. So in Ephesians chapter 6, we read these famous words, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, referring to Satan and all his hosts that fell with him, which we know very little about, but we see it all around us, and we see it throughout the scriptures. And what's interesting in Ephesians 6 is that Paul says this after addressing all the different relational issues that we face in our families, in our workplace, and in our society. That unseen, invisible, spiritual war is intimately connected with all of those relationships, and it's going on. And many times we're unaware of it. So as one writer says, so we are no longer free to play the role of civilians living as if there were no war. What does the spiritual war look like? Well, there's a, we could have a whole series on all that, but right now just a few glimpses, two from the Old Testament, two from the New Testament before we go into Ephesians 6. A few glimpses and in in some lessons they teach us. We begin in Job uh, 1 and 2. Uh, I'm just going to briefly reference it. Uh, we see a heavenly wager between God and Satan, our adversary. Satan who wanted to destroy Job and his relationship with God. And what was the test? He said, he said, Job's not faithful to you for nothing, is basically what Satan said. So Job's faithfulness was the test in the midst of horrific suffering of the loss of everything he had except his life. The loss of his family, the loss of his health, where he had boils from head to toe, in incredible suffering that we cannot imagine, when he could not understand why. And what's more, never knew what was going on in the heavenly places. That's what's hard. He didn't know. And there's lots to learn here in, in the book of Job. But for me, the one main lesson is that we cannot see what is going on in the heavenly realms that affects us here. We cannot see that. But through the word and spirit, I can see the greatness of a God I can't figure out, as God showed Job towards the end of the book, but can trust in, I can trust in this God I can't figure out because of his love shown to me in Jesus, which we can see. And what it does is, it brings us, as Job says, I've heard of you, but now I've seen you and I repent in dust and ashes because I've seen something of your greatness, and we see something of the greatness and love demonstrated in Jesus, not only 2,000 years ago, but when he touched our lives in history right now. And the second lesson I have is that, very interestingly, Job's fortunes were returned when? when he prayed for his friends so that God would not do to them according to their foolishness. So it says the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. Very a powerful picture of the necessity and power of prayer in God's work, and not only, but of our connections with one another and the necessity of our connections in one another and praying for one another. Daniel chapter 10. Daniel has just seen a vision He's terrified by it, 
And an angel is sent to Daniel to comfort him. And we read in verse 12, Then he said to me, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. But, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days, and behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. Then we read in verse 20, Then he said, Do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I am going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael the prince. Now that's very interesting. One of those few glimpses that we see in the Bible about what's going on in the heavenly places. Rulers, powers, world forces, spiritual forces in heavenly places that involves the historic progression of nations. Satan is called the ruler of this world and the prince of the power of the air. But God is sovereign and directing it all. And there's battle going on. So this glimpse into the heavenlies has everything to do with the unfolding of God's kingdom plan, first to prepare the way for Jesus when he came. It was no just chance that it was the Roman Empire and how God directed everything for the Jesus to come in that midst and for the gospel to spread throughout the Roman Empire. It was not chance. God was directing all that. And up to the present day, as God is directing history so that the gospel can be preached in all the world as a testimony to all peoples so that the end can come. There is a cosmic war going on. And one lesson in all this, what characterizes our individual and corporate prayer in light of the kingdoms in conflict that Paul spoke to us about last week? What characterizes our individual and corporate prayer? We pray for leaders and God's work in nations for the purposes of his kingdom, for gospel penetration and transformation because there is a war going on. And Satan wants to do everything to hinder the progress of that gospel which transforms individuals, peoples, families, and societies. Then we go to the New Testament briefly to Luke chapter 13 where we look at Jesus entering and Jesus encounters a woman who for 18 years had a sickness caused by a spirit. And when they were giving him a hard time for healing her on the Sabbath, he said, And this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? 18 years. And we realize that some sickness can be a part of this spiritual war. It's very interesting. And all sickness and disease is a consequence of Genesis 3. And so Jesus' healing ministry showed that King Jesus and his reign was breaking into Satan's dominion, bringing healing and freedom. And my friends, when we follow Jesus, and this is all part of following Jesus on his kingdom mission and what God has for us as a church, when we follow Jesus, we follow Jesus when we pray for healing, and ministering to people that are ill. And all those different, when we, when we touch the brokenness of the world and enter into it, we follow Jesus in that. 
in John 8, 44, uh, Jesus has some choice words about Satan. Satan is a murderer from the beginning, a liar, and the father of lies. Satan, effectively murdered, caused the death of humanity through their disobedience. And we were in all that. Then, as a liar, he wants to deceive our thinking in different ways. And there's four, at least four different lies that he has here. Number one, in our society, God is not there. Either because of, you know, in the scientific world and in a large part of the scientific world, the only thing that, that matters that it's real is, is, is what you can touch. Or God is not there because if he was there, all the evil and all the trouble around us wouldn't be happening. Second deception, if God is there, he's the classic illustration, he's either not all-powerful or not all-good. Because if he was all-powerful, he would do something about all the evil. Well, then he must not be all-powerful. Or if he was all-good, he's not all-powerful because he obviously is too weak to do something about all the evil, even though he's all-good. Deceptions that are all around us. Number three, his goodness to us is based on our performance. And this characterizes the largest part of humanity around the world and all the religions of the world, that in some way we become accepted to God if we're just good enough. And we all struggle with that. We struggle with that, uh, with our performance and resting in the unconditional love of God who loved us when we were enemies. And the last one, the last, well, there's others, I'm sure, but the last deception, he is not all sufficient for our well-being and joy. We need something else, whether that's another relationship, other circumstances, or other things to make us happy. And that's the bottom line of Madison Avenue advertising. And everything that we are bombarded with all the time for everything that's out there from technology to relationships to things, whatever it is, we are bombarded with that, that that one thing, that one relation, whatever it is, will make us happy a little, or a little bit, little bit more happier than we are. And all of these, all of these lies distance us from God and others that we are called to love. And that's the best case scenario, where, we, where we have di we're still living with people, but there's distance in our relationships. In the worst case scenario, there is racism, hatred, murder, adultery, abuse, you name it. The evil that destroys relationships. Because the ultimate desire of Satan in this war, in this invisible war, is to destroy relationship with God and with one another. Count on it. And at all levels, at all levels, whether it be at an individual level of two people with one another, whether it be at a church level, whether it be at a societal level, or as a nation level where we see genocide going on. That's the work of Satan. And in one way or another, there is unseen battle going on for us to be caught in these lies, in the power of sin and evil. 
And this battle affects all of our relationships and and circumstances in which our calling is to love God and the people of those very circumstances and relationships. Because the only way we can truly learn to love God in trusting ourselves to him and to give ourselves to another person in love without an agenda to get something in return is to believe that God is there, that he is all good and powerful, that his love for us began when we were far from him and his enemies, and that his love, his delight in us, is all sufficient to sustain us if and when our love is rejected. It's the only thing. And that brings us to what we sang about and to the victory of the coming one we celebrate at Christmas that Genesis 3.15 promises. The paradox that the victor crushing the head of the serpent as he strikes his heel on the cross. His victory is our victory as we live in a growing relationship, communion, companionship, friendship, in wholehearted allegiance to our king and victor who has already won the victory. So listen just to a few pronouncements of victory. Hebrews 2, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. In 1 John 3, we read, The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Works to destroy relationships with God and with people. In John 12 and 16, The ruler of this world will be cast out. The ruler of this world has been judged. And in Colossians 2, very interestingly, When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him, through the cross. Judgment has been pronounced on Satan. And Ephesians Ephesians and Colossians talks talks about that Jesus is over all rulers and authorities. And that's why we can say we are more than conquerors in him who loved us. He is over all these things. But in ways that we don't understand, the sentence of Satan's judgment has not yet been carried out. And Satan and his hosts are seeking the destruction of our relationships with God and others at all levels. But Jesus has won the victory, is risen and ascended, and is head of his body, the church, against whom the gates of hell will not prevail. The word of Jesus about the church. The the church is on a warpath. Jesus says, assailing the gates of hell, and they will not prevail. I have an idea that we don't often think of ourselves that way. And that's, why, and that's exactly what we see in the book of Acts as the gospel crosses culture, 
And we see the beginnings of that until the end of the book where the gospel was penetrating the Roman Empire and by the third, by the third century had turned it upside down. We see that throughout church history, wherever the gospel has had transformation, Wherever the gospel has touched, there has been transformation. Transformation in healthcare with the establishment of hospitals. Transformation in education. Transformation in, in laws and all of those different things. That's all a result of the gospel touching people, touching society, and transforming it. To the present day, the gospel brings transformation wherever it touches. And if you're here this morning, my friends, and you know Jesus has entered your life, you know that at some measure he has transformed your life. You are not the person you used to be with all the mess that we can still be in. He's transformed our lives. He touches our families. He touches our church. He Wherever it goes, the gospel brings transformation to the extent that it penetrates and that we bring it. And that's why you can turn to Ephesians 6 if you like. Uh, that's why in Ephesians 6, the Apostle Paul can say, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, his victory. Put in the full armor of God so that you can be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And just a few observations, the first of which is we begin where we are seated. Paul wrote that in Ephesians 6, but in the first couple of chapters, he talks about Christ being raised and ascended and seated in the heavenly places in Christ. And guess where we are? We're there right with him. We begin there. We begin there in the heavenly places. And he begins with this truth. Having, he begins with the truth, having girded your loins with truth. And I believe he does that because truth is the opposite of Satan's strategy, which is deceit and lies. And that's why the truth of God in the scriptures is something we must prioritize and grow in. And it's the way Jesus also, if you went back to it, handled the temptation of Satan with scripture, with the truth. Next, he talks about having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And people sometimes ask, well, is this our righteous position because we believe in Jesus or our righteous living? Yes. Both. It's, I don't know why people argue about things like that. To know I am loved and accepted in the beloved, in Jesus, with the mess of my life, brings me to live in loving obedience. So Paul wrote to, in Romans, in Romans 16, when he heard of the obedience of, of the Roman church, he says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. When we do not believe this, we open the door for living in ways that will bring consequences and defeat. So, for instance, in Ephesians chapter 4, we have those famous verses that says, uh, do not let the sun go down on your anger, right? You know, be angry and sit not. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And then what's the next verse? And do not give the devil a place. Unresolved anger can give the devil a place. And that's just anger. That's just anger. We can extend that to any of the works of the flesh that we continue in unresolved. The devil can have a place in that, which means he's going to have a place in our relationships. Unseen war going on. Having and, and, and what is significant in all this is that the expression that of the breastplate of righteousness comes from Isaiah 59, where God does this to bring us salvation. It's said of God. 
And so we who are in Christ, united with him, are told to do the same thing as we bring salvation to others. And so the next phrase we read is, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, this is an incredible reminder that the gospel we live out and proclaim is that which brings wholeness to people. The gospel of shalom reverses the work of the devil. And if there's anything that characterizes people today, my friends, is a lack of wholeness. Because the further we get away from the truth of the gospel, the less whole we will be and are. And he continues with the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Count on it as we proactively pursue the kingdom purposes of God to assault the gates of hell in our life, in our families, in our church. It's one reason we're together and we're, we're setting aside this time in our church. At your job where the battle goes on, that's a primary venue for this battle, your jobs. Count on some flaming arrows to discourage to distract us, and to weaken our resolve. And the only way forward in all that, Hebrews tells us, is keeping our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the Father. Who we see, who we see through his word, his spirit, and we see through one another as we pursue this kingdom together. We cannot live and fight the spiritual war by ourselves. And the last offense of peace, the helmet of salvation, that's also said of God in Isaiah 59. He puts it on. The helmet which protects us from a blow to the head is the free and gracious salvation which God has given us in his love, a gift no one can take away, from which no one can separate us. And we operate out of that. We don't operate from down here. We operate out of our position with Jesus, raised with him. And then we, you probably heard that the word, sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, is the only offensive weapon and it brings us full circle back to the truth that we are to live and speak and love. That truth, which is the only thing that penetrates the heart. Truth in love. But this whole discourse on armor is premised upon a living relationship with a living person, Jesus, who we know, who we know more and more through how? Simply spending time with him individually and corporately. So Paul connects this with uh, this whole discourse on this armor with an all-encompassing challenge, the prayer, a unique verse in all of the Bible where he says, through all prayer and petition, praying at all times in the spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. We are reminded that prayer is the language of relating with God. A person, presenting ourselves to him without pretense, just as we are, Low, we can, lowering the mask with God, being mindful of what we are thinking about God, 
and really what we believe about him. Thinking about that. Confessing our failures in our love relationships. Confessing them, recognizing those things and approaching him as the supreme and preeminent in our lives. And the only way we know, the only way a relationship of any kind grows is by spending time with that person. Virtual relationships notwithstanding, social media notwithstanding. We will not know our spouse or friend better by only speaking to them at mealtime. Neither will we know God better that way. And here Paul simply tells the church to pray in all types of circumstances about what she just wrote in all the relationships of life and to bring all of those things because there, because there is an unseen battle going on with all those things. With all types of prayer, whether that's worship, confession, thanksgiving, and obviously intercession for all kinds of believers, those we like and those we don't, those we have difficulty with, and those we just freely embrace. With praying with regularity and perseverance because we depend on one another. But the interesting phrase here in all this is to pray in the spirit. And people understand that different ways. But minimally, I believe it speaks of a growing awareness of many things. A growing awareness of the presence and work of the Spirit in us individually and as a church and wanting to listen to God and to seek Him for that. An awareness that goes beyond flesh and blood and material things because our warfare is not essentially material. An awareness that God has His plan for the world that includes us. That's an amazing thing. That includes us in the propagation of the gospel right here and around the world. And that is a plan that is energized by his spirit in his body, the church. And it's a plan involving invisible spiritual battle where Satan seeks to hinder that plan of God. That's the enmity. The hostilities in the spiritual realm that affect the progress of God's plan here. So the spirit, as the Lord Jesus, the spirit of Jesus teaches us to pray... We all know it. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Meaning, incredibly, God's will is done on earth as we pray. Do we recognize that? We enter the battle through prayer because God has so orchestrated things in his sovereignty that he acts in response to our prayers. I can't figure all that out. God is sovereign. He's in control. But he says we have not because we ask not or we ask with selfish motives. And God's going to accomplish his purposes, but he's going to do it through us. He's not going to do it apart from us. So one writer asks, are we expressing the enmity God put between the devil and the church's head? Are we expressing that enmity, that antagonism between the devil and the church's head? And so praying at all times in the spirit for all the saints speaks of a growing sensitivity and dependence on the spirit and one another in community 
to experience the victory together that has been won by Christ. And I close with the passage, a famous passage in Exodus, Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 to 13, where we read this. Then Amalek came, bring it over here. Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose men for us that we will go out and fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill and the staff of God in my hand. Joshua did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek. And Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So it came about when Moses held his hand up that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. Then they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sun set. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. The story speaks for itself. We need one another to sustain each other in the invisible spiritual war that is raging, that has visible effects here in our relationships and the progress of the gospel from here to the ends of the earth. May we support one another in the spirit as we assail the gates of hell together. Will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would teach us that you would teach us, grow our awareness, God, of the battle that is going on and the necessity and delight and enjoyment of meeting you and communion with you where we find that victory that has already been won for us in Jesus. Will you show us that individually? Will you show us that corporately as a church? We pray in Jesus' name. Well, on this last day of the year, we want to close out with a communal time of prayer. Um, before we do that, I wanted to share just a couple of thoughts as we end the year, as we start a new year, and it, it just to tie in with, with John's message a little bit. We certainly know that we have uh, faced flaming arrows throughout this year, and there is no doubt that we will face flaming arrows in a time in which we're going to communally uh, attempt to 40, do 40 days of fasting. What does that look like? I don't know. <laughs> we will find out together. Um, but I think it's a good reminder to know where we're operating from. Um, I'm not an astronomer, but it's estimated there's 200 to 400 uh, billion suns in our galaxy, all right, and 400 billion billion suns, all right, all the galaxies. Who created that? That's, that is the spirit that is within us. 2 Timothy 1.7, for God has given us a spirit of, not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and discipline. Romans 8.11, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give us life in our mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in us. And lastly, my favorite verse that I want to share with you as we, we come to a time of prayer, because you are sons and daughters, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. There are ramifications of that. That's who we are as a community. 
Amen? So as we pray, my challenge for us together is that we expect great things in this coming year. As we reflect on the great things that God has done this past year, I mean, the Van Wingerdens were brought to us. I mean, this time last year, this is where we were, expecting an interim pastor to lead us through some sort of process that we have no idea what it looks like. And as that's starting to take shape and the anticipation of this time of prayer and fasting is literally on our doorstep now, uh, starting on Tuesday, just as a reminder for you. Um, <laughs> we also look at some other things, the transition team, the work that they have done, um, the, the meetings and the more meetings, and then the meetings about the meetings and the other meetings that we've had this year. Um, there's also the challenges that we've wrestled through as a church together, but, but lastly, just this, in, this time of anticipation of prayer and fasting. Um, so let us stand together. And I want you right in your, in, your, in your pews where you are to hold hands. This is a sign of community as we close out this year. And if there's no one else in your pew, let's move around a little bit. That's okay. You're allowed to do that. And let us pray together <clears throat> and ask God to uh, bless this, this last day and, and the coming time that we have in this 2018. Father, we, we thank you so much for all that you have blessed us with. Just the fact that out of all humanity, you have picked everyone in this room to be called your sons and your daughters. Father, that is amazing and beyond certainly my belief, uh, comprehension. I don't get it. But I know, Lord, that if your spirit, who raised your son from the dead, lives in us, then, Father, we can expect great things. So let us expect great things, Father. Would you, Lord, give us the armor that we need would you remind us who we are as we go through the difficult times? Lord, I ask that you would protect your church right here in Havertown, this local body of believers. Lord, just as we approach 40 days of prayer and fasting, a time of devotion to you, that you would, that you would convict us, Father, that you would teach us what it looks like to be your children, to affect our culture, to affect our community in all different ways both locally and abroad. Father, would you also uh, just develop unity amongst us, Father? Would you develop what, what it says right there, the spirit of love and peace with one another, Lord, that it would permeate our culture, that it would permeate our town and the local towns, and that it would grow to where your light just shines so bright from this church, Father, that you are able to create a revival. Lord, that is our cry. We ask in this new year that you would just provide revival for this church, Father, that you provide leading for our church, and most, most importantly, Lord, that we would do your work, that we would be in alignment with you. We would be moving where you are moving, in your direction and in your leading. Father, it is in Jesus' awesome and powerful name that we pray these things. Amen.